turn with me in your uh, Bible to uh, Psalm 90. Psalm chapter, excuse me, Psalm 90. It's not a chapter, it's a psalm. Psalm 90. Uh, I will read the entire psalm. As I say, this will you will receive the first portion of the sermon uh, this morning and the uh, second half this evening. But I'll read the whole text right now. <clears throat> this is the Word of God. It has everything that you and I need. You can't hear me back there? Oh, really? It says green. It is on. Is that better? I just moved it. Okay. Um, Jeff, Trey, if you just check on me back there in the corner. Thank you. Okay. Psalm 90. This is the word of the Lord. It has everything that you and I need for life and godliness. And it is the word of God um, as well as the word of Moses. Uh, Listen reverently as I read it to you. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or Thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. Thou dost turn man back into dust, and dost say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Thou hast swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we have been dismayed. Thou hast placed our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy presence. For all our days have declined in thy fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain seventy years, or if due to strength, eighty years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of thine anger? And thy fury, according to the fear that is due thee. So, teach us to number our days, that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be 
and be sorry for thy servants. O satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days thou hast afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let thy work appear to thy servants and thy majesty to their children. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And do confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Amen. Pray with me. O oh Lord, we rejoice, Lord, that you are uh, a God who cares for us. That though we are subject to the effects of the curse, as is evident from this psalm, yet, Lord, ultimately, your loving kindness is upon those of us who are your people. Though we are sons and daughters of Adam, we are also sons and daughters of the second Adam. And therein lies our hope. We thank you that uh, you have given us this portion of your word. We ask that you would use my exposition of it to profit us uh, in, um, in this time and also honor you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, uh, when you came to church today, I'm pretty sure it was not cold enough for you to see your breath. But recently, fairly recently, we've had days when it was cold enough so that if you went outside in the morning at least, and maybe once or twice in the afternoon, you could see your breath. You know what I'm talking about, right? You go like this and... You see kind of a a whitish kind of cloud uh, uh, appear in front of you. And uh, that's called water vapor. Um, It's actually water, little little droplets of water that you can actually see called water vapor. And it's it's kind of a a mist of a sort, you might call it that, a vapor. Uh, So let me ask you something. The last time you did that and last time you saw your breath, how long was it before you couldn't see that vapor anymore that came out of your mouth? It was real short, wasn't it? It was a really, really short period of time before that, that, that kind of whitish vapor or mist that came out of your mouth was no longer visible to you where you couldn't see it anymore. It only lasted probably about half a second, really. About as long as you could say the word vapor, and then it was gone. Did you know that the Bible, uh, in God's Word, compares the length of our life here on earth uh, to a vapor? God, in His Word, says that your life and mine is uh, 
like a vapor in that the amount of time that we spend on earth lasts about as long as that vapor lasts that comes out of our mouth on a cold day. It's very, very short. It's very short. Now, you as young children and, uh, and teenagers, it still applies to teenagers, oftentimes think you have got gobs and gobs of time. The truth is you don't. Uh, even for a teenager or a young child, this life is short. It may not appear that way, but appearances can be deceiving. Uh, our lives are very, very short in the grand scheme of things. In the, in the book of James, in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 14, uh, God, through James, says, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We are repeatedly reminded of this truth in Scripture, that our lives are transient, that they are fleeting, uh, that they are um, ephemeral. We read in Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes, similar to what we read in Psalm 90 here a few moments ago, When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. The grass is no more when the wind has passed over it. And its place acknowledges it no longer. Job 14, verses 1 and 2. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Psalm 39, verse 5, Behold, thou hast made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in thy sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. And then, of course, Psalm 90 that we're looking at today is in part a reflection by Moses on the brevity, the frailty of human existence. Uh, even amongst his people, even amongst those whom he has forgiven and brought into his holy family. And this is why Psalm 90, as well as some of these other passages that I've read, are often read at Christian funerals and have been for centuries because they speak of our condition as um, brief, Creatures, if I can put it that way, whose earthly life, at least, is very brief. So, given the fact that, given the brevity of our lives, given the uh, uncertainty of the future, um, and the briefness of our life in relation to the creation around us, How should we live our days out here? Well, this psalm provides uh, an answer to that question, at least in part. There are other other passages of Scripture in other places where it adds to what this psalm teaches. But this psalm makes some very important points about, uh, alludes to, or directly says 
uh, how we need to live in light of this truth. And there are three things that we are going to look at, both now and uh, this evening, uh, the last uh, two, prob- two points uh, this evening. But they are these. First, as those whose lives are but a vapor, we need to make the Lord our dwelling place. Secondly, as those whose lives are but a vapor, we need to make every day count. And finally, because, or rather, as those whose lives are but a vapor, we need to make repeated petitions to God for his grace to live out this life. So, first, as those whose lives are but a vapor or like a vapor, perhaps is a better way to put it, in terms of its brevity, we need to make the Lord our dwelling place. We see this, of course, in the very first uh, line of the first uh, verse. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Not just Moses' day, but throughout the uh, existence of the church, which began, of course, after the fall in the garden. I say it began after the fall. It began in the garden. Um, the Lord, to his people, has been a dwelling place of his people and needs to be given uh, our circumstances. What does it mean to make God or to have God, the Lord our God, as our dwelling place? Well, a few things come to, to mind. It seems to me that to say that he is our dwelling place or we make him our dwelling place is he needs to be the place, quote-unquote, he's a person, but in this, uh, to carry on with the metaphor, the place where we spend our time, if I can put it that way. In other words, which is to say that he needs to be our constant companion. We need to be consciously in the presence of God as we live out our daily lives. Uh, he needs to be the one with whom we are in fellowship and as much as possible, and we can't do this, of course, um, every second, but as much as possible in the spirit of every second, be in companionship and fellowship with God. Uh, we need to dwell in Him, if I can put it that way, uh, and, and work at being mindful of that dwelling uh, in God. He needs to be, obviously, as part of having Him as our dwelling place, we, He is the focal point of our life. He needs to be our motivation. He needs to be our telos, our goal. Uh, His glory needs to be our uh, greatest desire. And we need to work to uh, think his thoughts after him. And his thoughts, of course, are contained herein in the Holy Scriptures. We need to be people of the Scriptures and we need to remember that He is speaking to us and we need to make time and a regular time and concerted time to uh, allow Him to speak to us as we read and to meditate on and 
remember his words and hold them in our hearts so that even when we don't have the scriptures in front of us, we can access the scriptures, as it were, through um, our, our own memory. And of course, to make God our dwelling place also, uh, the idea here uh, is of, of, of protection. Our dwellings are protection. Uh, a dwelling is where, where we are protected from the elements, uh, where we are shielded from uh, people who might be on the outside who would wish to do us harm. Uh, and so we need, to, we need to look to the Lord and trust the Lord actively for our protection, uh, for our um, shelter, as it were, from the storms of life that inevitably come. Because we are sinners living in a sin-cursed world uh, and subject to the curse, still, we won't be in heaven, praise the Lord for it, but we are now. And so there are tears, there is death, there is sickness, there are, there are estranged relationships, uh, there is um, uh, temptation, um, and there is struggle. Even in 20th century, excuse me, wow, 21st century America, just dated myself. God, the Lord, our God, needs to be our, uh, our bastion, our, our place, our, our safe place, and our constant place, uh, where we dwell in Him in fellowship, uh, and in communion. And that takes work, folks. Uh, and I certainly don't have this one down. But it, we are to practice the presence of God I don't, uh, the, the gentleman who wrote that, Brother Lawrence, I believe it is, I don't agree with everything, but Brother Lawrence said, he was a bit of a mystic, but there is, there is truth to what he said in his phrase, practicing the presence of God. Um, we are to work at being conscious of him throughout our day as we go about fulfilling our callings. And why, why, well, I mean, aside from um, the very obvious reason, uh, Many obvious reasons, I should say, but the one that Moses focuses on here is uh, because of his eternality. We are ephemeral. We, our lives are fleeting. We, they are but a vapor, but God is just the opposite in his being. He is the eternal God. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world from everlasting, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He existed before the Rocky Mountains, before the Sierra Nevadas, before the Himalayas and the Andes and the Alps. He existed. He existed before the earth was even brought into being at all. We read in the scriptures, in the beginning, God. Meaning he was... He was there when time came into being and there was a beginning because you can't have a beginning without time. And he was already there when the beginning happened. And it's because he is from everlasting to everlasting that he was there when the beginning happened. What does that mean? To say God is was there before the beginning and is everlasting to everlasting. Well, he exists, and I've said this before, but he exists outside of the dimensions of time and space. Time, he is not bound by time. Time is bound by him. 
He is its creator. It serves him. He doesn't serve it, if I can put it that way. He is timeless. Now, he works in time, of course. But he is not ontologically bound by it. It doesn't affect him, his existence. Um, He's not beholden to uh, time as creatures are, like ourselves. Uh, And so, he has no beginning. Um, He has no ending. To ask, when did God begin, is to ask an illegitimate question. Because again, it, it, the question, uh, bound up in the question is the assumption that God is bound by time. Um, and he's not. And so he has no beginning. And that's not problematic if you take time out of the equation. God is without a beginning and without an end. And this is why he is identified, identifies himself, um, as the great I am to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He is the great I am. Among other things that that implies is it implies that he is the eternally present one. He is eternally present. And again, that's problematic because that implies time too in some sense. Um, but I'm running out of terms to try to deal with this concept. And because God is not... Um, on a timeline and bound by the strictures of time, he is incapable of change. Change requires the passage of time. It is defined by the passage of time. And so this is why God's eternality and his immutability go hand in hand. They are, they are two sides of the same coin, in essence. So God cannot change because he is eternal. So that means he does not change in his being, certainly. It means none of his attributes ever change. Um, he is, it means that none of his thoughts, none of his plans, none of his purposes change. Nothing changes with God. Now, yes, he can interact with um, mutable creatures like ourselves who are subject to change, who do change, uh, over time, opinions, uh, uh, looks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But so he can interact with us, but but he is not. We mustn't we mustn't anthropomorphize God in this way, as we uh, as as people have been so wont to do over the years. God does not change because he is outside of time. He is the eternal one. We are. Ephemeral. Our lives are brief. They are like a vapor. And so we need to, uh, to be in God as our dwelling place that the brevity of our earthly existence uh, doesn't define us forevermore. And so that, and we need to be in Him, in God, by faith. The I am, and remember who the I am is. Jesus identified himself as the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am, he says in John chapter 8. And so that death might not have the final say, 
we need to be related properly uh, and in fellowship with and spiritually united to the great I am through the Son. And again, this is that what we read in verses 3 through 6 and then again in verse 10 um, might not ultimately define us. So let's read verses 3 through 6 and then verse 10. Thou dost turn man back into dust. Thou dost say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight, and here it is, are like yesterday when it passes by, it's nothing. Or as a watch in the night. Thou dost sweep them away. Like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. And then verse 10, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Moses is directing his attention, our attention here as the reader, to the mortality, our own mortality, and the brevity of our earthly existence. It is a flash in the pan. But if we are united to the I Am, if we are dwelling in our God by faith in His Son, death doesn't get the final say. Yes, the curse, which includes death, is still upon us until Jesus returns. Death has been referred to as the great leveler because no one, no matter how wise, rich, or powerful, can escape its vice grip like hold. Think of all the notable figures in human history, Moses, Solomon, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Confucius, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, Genghis Khan, Shakespeare, Luther, Napoleon, Queen Victoria. I admire that lady. Einstein, all dead, all rotted, decayed, dust, gone. Food for worms, all of them. Every single one of us will die, unless, of course, come Lord Jesus, we can pray that and we should, but unless he returns, every single one of us will meet that destiny. We will die ourselves bodily. But death does not have the final say for those who are have God as their dwelling place. For those who are objects of the loving kindness of which we read over in verse 14 and following. You see, the hope comes back into the picture because he's speaking of man as man in verses 3 and following. And, and including the believer. We're caught up in the effects of our sin. Uh, the death and the, and the futility of, of human existence still plagues us even as believers who are objects of God's loving kindness in Christ. And so we're still affected by this, by the, uh, this, um, curse. And yet, it doesn't have the final say if we are recipients of the loving kindness of the Lord of which we read later in the psalm, which comes only through Jesus Christ. If we are anchored in him, the great I am incarnate, if we are united to him by faith alone, the frailty of our existence need no longer 
trouble us. So it can trouble us a little bit, and I think perhaps it should. But we don't have to let it trouble us perpetually or uh, for any length of time. We can bemoan it, um, the futility of life, the brevity of life, age, the effects of aging. But we don't need to let it consume us because it doesn't have the final say. The thought of dying need no longer terrify you or me since Jesus, our Redeemer and our I Am, he will abolish death for all, once and for all, when he comes in glory for a second time. And even though our bodies may and will die if he has not returned at that moment when we take our last breath, he died so that we would no longer have to die eternally. And so that death would not be the victor, even with respect to our bodies. Yes, temporarily, death gets our bodies. But even that doesn't, isn't final. Even that is not final. For our bodies will be resurrected and will be united in the last day with our souls which have gone to heaven, if, they, if indeed that is our situation, and our bodies will be glorified and new and um, won't plague us the way they do now, which I'm looking forward to that, as I imagine you are too. And this, by the way, this med- meditation, the, this thought of uh, that death doesn't get the final say, that death doesn't have to be seen as victorious, even though it temporarily gets uh, us uh, physically. This is was his meditation uh, when he spoke these words, wrote these words, I should say, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You, this familiar passage for all of us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, the point is, it's, it's, it's not there anymore for me. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, meaning over death and over sin, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the thought of death doesn't exactly please me. I imagine it doesn't please you either. Of having to face that day, I think of it periodically, and um, in my less spiritual moments, it uh, concerns me, to say the least. But we've got to remember, we've got to put it in perspective. It's not, first of all, we are ushered personally right into the presence of the Lord in heaven, the moment it happens. And even our bodies, we're going to get them back. And it's going to be, that's going to be the most glorious state of all when our, our perfected soul and body are brought together again at the resurrection. And it's assured to us by our, by our faithful God who is the eternal one, the, the great I am, 
He's got it covered. And yet, we live under the curse because He has willed. It's in His good pleasure and for His good and holy purposes and reasons that He has allowed us to continue um, under the effects of the curse even while we are His children and even while we've been made new creatures in Christ. But in our union with Him, with Christ, uh, the Son in particular, and thus with all three persons of the Godhead, because uh, our Savior is eternal, uh, our union with Him, not only in that does death not have the final say, but also we are not consumed by God's wrath, which is spoken of in this passage as well, this psalm. Verses uh, 7 through 9 and then 11 speak of the wrath of God towards sinners. Physical death among humans came about as a result of our sin, as a race, in the fall. Verse 3 of our verse, of our, of our psalm, um, almost certainly alludes to the curse of death which God pronounced in his wrath upon mankind. When he said, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And verse 3 of our text says, thou dost turn man back into dust. In other words, in in, uh, in fulfillment of his words in the garden to Adam and Eve. Thou dost turn man back into dust, and thou dost say, Return, O children of men, meaning to the dust. And we aren't immune from that as Christians, as sinful people who are forgiven. Um, sin still has that effect on us. Death itself is a demonstration of God's hatred of sin, of his judicial need to punish sin, and, by the way, of his covenant faithfulness, because he made a covenant with, Abraham, with, uh, with Adam uh, in his innocence and said, of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of the one tree you may not in the day you eat of it, you shall surely I will see to it that you die. That was a covenant. That was a promise from God. And he is a faithful God. He is faithful to keep his word. And death is part of that faithfulness to his word to the first Adam. That has fallen upon all of Adam's descendants, including ourselves. And it's a demonstration of God's Faithfulness of his justice and of his holiness, that death affects us all. And even in life, death casts its long shadow over our existence uh, as people. We're regularly reminded by our pains, especially those of us who are over 50, our stiffness, our wrinkles, um, our uh, other maladies, and by death, the death of others around us, uh, parents, friends, that uh, death is lurking off in the distance. If I can personify death for a moment. And he is patiently waiting for our inevitable arrival. Yours and mine. And to the extent that death still affects those of us who are Christians, and it does, to that extent, God's wrath is still felt by us in an indirect way. 
I don't think it's appropriate really to describe fundamentally God's, uh, uh, this is wrath towards believers. Jesus endured God's wrath that we might not receive the judicial wrath of God. But this, if you can, if you can put it in some way, the fact that we still die is a, it's an, um, uh, an, an after effect. Um, I think of uh, the the imagery that comes to mind is the the astronomers talk about the uh, uh, the afterglow of the birth of the universe. Now their idea of the birth of the universe, of course, is irrelevant. It's not biblical and it's foolish. But uh, they speak of the afterglow that is uh, they say is out there. Uh, some phenomenon that uh, they record as uh, speak of as the afterglow of the uh, of the uh, birth of the universe, and uh, it's kind of like that. We are we are affected by the or aftershock maybe of an earthquake, might uh, be another way of thinking of it a comparison. But we we still are reminded of that and to some extent are uh, under the effects of that judicial judgment that God rendered in the covenant of works. And this is why Moses is able to say what he says here in verses seven through nine. We for we includes himself have been consumed by thine anger. And by thy wrath we have been dismayed. Thou hast placed our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy presence. For all our days have declined in thy fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. And there's truth to that even for the believer to some degree. Not the, not the ultimate uh, God holding our sins against us. That's not what uh, uh, that is implying, I don't think. But the fact that our bodies die is, uh, is, a, is a vestige of God's wrath. Uh, that was on us before we were converted uh, and in Adam um, and um, still there are after effects uh, including death temporary though it is for our bodies but that's true for the believer but for the person who does not have Jesus the great I am enfleshed as his abode as his dwelling place as his refuge by trusting in Jesus alone uh, to to get um, reconciled to God uh, and to turn God's wrath away from you. If you are not trusting in Jesus alone, then uh, the death of your body when you die will be only the beginning of God's punishment upon you. You see, the curse of physical death is but a prelude to the infinitely more horrifying punishment of spiritual death, which we all deserve, I as much as you. But for those of us who are hidden in Christ, Christ took that punishment for us. He endured an eternity's worth of hell's wrath, of divine wrath, because that's what's in hell. He absorbed it for the believer but only for the believer. And so if you are not believing in Him, if you are not trusting in Him, if you are not clinging to Him alone, not to your good works, which aren't good in His sight, by the way, but to Jesus and His goodness, His perfect righteousness, and His perfect sacrifice, if you're not clinging there too, as the venerable William Plummer uh, put it, the roaring of a lion spreads alarm. The wrath of a king is as messengers of death, but the anger of God burns to the lowest hell.
And you will be there if you're not clinging to Jesus. Don't be stupid. Don't be a fool. Don't trust in yourself and your paltry attempts at good works to get yourself into heaven. Because I'm telling you, you won't make it. Your works are obscure. Your, what you think are good are vile in God's sight because all he sees is the sin in your heart. And it offends him because he's a holy God. And your sin is rebellion. My sin is rebellion against God. And it offends him. And he must, because he's just punished your sin. And, and either Jesus gets our, the punishment we deserve, or we get the punishment we deserve. And the only difference is, are you in Christ? So, are you in Christ by faith alone? Are you trusting him alone? Is he your shelter, your shield, your fortress, your defender? Or are you going to stand before God's throne by yourself? You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. You need to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. In the one who is the eternal I am. The eternal place of refuge. The Lord Jesus. And you will escape the wrath of God on judgment day. But only. If you're in Christ, flee to Christ. Flee to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that because you are a God of grace, you were willing to send your Son. And Jesus, you were willing to be sent by the Father. And Holy Spirit, you were willing to apply to us the redemption that Jesus purchased for us all because of divine grace. How grateful we are that you are this this kind of a God and that you are our God. You are so kind to have delivered us from our foolishness, from our sin, from your wrath. We ask, Lord, that if there's any soul here today that hasn't truly clung to Christ understood that Jesus alone can save him. Would you please have mercy on such a one? Give him faith to flee to Jesus. And for the rest of us, Lord, would you please help us to remember um, that our lives are but a vapor. Life in this world is fleeting. And we ask that you would help us to live in light of that truth, carefully, wisely. And we ask that you would help us to do just that. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.